Title is Director of Instructional Design and Theological Education, but everybody's like, asked, what, what does that mean? Uh, up until about four months ago, I was called an initiative strategist, which then really everybody asked, what do you do? Uh, but we've been working at ABWE on a couple different projects lately, and I've had the privilege to be involved in them. Uh, one has been to figure out how to train missionaries uh, better and take advantage of some online learning tools uh, that, are, that are out there. Uh, and another has been to try to organize better with our theological educators. We have about 70 missionaries, 75 missionaries, uh, that are training up pastors all around the world uh, in schools, uh, seminaries, and also in non-formal settings. And uh, just to throw this statistic to you, if you're a numbers person, but 85% of pastors in the majority world have no formal Bible training. Uh, let, let that sink in. in. In the Bible Fellowship Church, we, we like our pastors to be educated, and we have some requirements, and it varies on how they can meet them. But, but around the world, those opportunities are, are not there. And it's not... It's not whether or not you have a degree, uh, and it's do you know how to handle the Word of God? And so there's a dearth of theological education and a need for just discipleship that trains up the next generation. And so I have the privilege to help the guys that do that, get involved some myself, and, and even from time to time do some teaching. So it's just been a privilege. I, before that, I was a Bible Fellowship Church pastor uh, for 16 years and grew up mostly in the Bible Fellowship Church other than being a missionary kid for a few years. So it's a privilege always to just speak in a Bible Fellowship Church. Take your Bibles, if you would, and open up to uh, Revelation chapter 15, and we're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 through 4 this morning. Revelation chapter 15 uh, verses 1 through 4, and it's probably not a passage we look at uh, very often, uh, but as I started thinking about how to address eschatology and missions, um, this passage caught my eye. It's a little less known than, say, Revelation 5 and that great throne room scene, uh, but it's very similar, and so I thought we would look at this passage this morning. Listen then to the word of God. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for them, the wrath of God is, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled uh, with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just, as the true, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning uh, from your word. 
that you would guide and direct us as we, we walk through this passage and give me uh, the words to say. And may it uh, motivate us to, to be missions-minded, maybe in some way to consider going ourselves or serving or helping even behind the scenes or just supporting missions and evangelism from our local church setting, Lord. May we be a church that's passionate, not just about missions overseas, but the mission opportunities that are all around us in our neighborhoods, opportunities for evangelism and sharing the gospel with our neighbors, our friends, our children's friends. Lord, truly, give us the eyes to see that that the fields are ripe for harvest and you need workers who are fitted to go into the fields. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be present, that you, again, would give me the words to say. In Jesus' name, amen. The basic idea this morning for us is simply that, that knowing the end drives us to missions. They put that word eschatology in the title, and that's all eschatology is, the, the doctrine of the things that will happen at the end as the Lord returns. Now, there's certainly more nuance to that, and we could talk about how the cross and the resurrection of Jesus begins the fulfillment and guarantees the end. And sometimes you'll hear the word inaugurated eschatology, meaning God's kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As we read with the Great Commission, Jesus starts it out with, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And and while Jesus has had authority as truly God from all eternity past, this is his messianic authority now. His being crowned, having sacrificed himself, risen again from the dead, and now ascending up and sitting at the right hand of the Father until all things are put under his feet. And there is a sense in which that's an event of eschatology that's already happened. That great hope of the Old Testament has come. But for our perspective, eschatology is the things that are still yet to come. Knowing the end. Knowing what lies ahead. Knowing the certainty of Jesus' victory and Satan's defeat and the triumph of the church of God motivates us to missions. Another point we want to make today as we think through this is that we rejoice that the Lord is saving a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. How you think about eschatology now as you look to the future and what's going to happen should cause you in your heart to rejoice to find hope on those dark days, to find something to sing about. And if you've ever been in church ministry or involved in a church, you know there are seasons where the church doesn't do well, where it doesn't feel like it's growing, and maybe it's not growing. You're dealing with trials and challenges, and it's hard in those moments. Our missionaries on the missions field face those kinds of hardships. I know a missionary who was on a location actually in North America, ministering in a very difficult field. There were very few unbelievers around him. 
He was actually in the Midwest serving on an Indian reservation. He's been there, I think, like 35 or 40 years. And at one point when he was there, about 20 or 25 years, I went out to visit him. And you got a sense of how hard it was. Because people would make professions of faith and they would come to the church. And then the culture around them, the environment, the close-knit community would, would entice them back. It's hard in missions, but knowing the end motivates us. Knowing that that despite the ebbs and the flows, the, the feeling like you've moved one step forward and five steps backwards, knowing that the end is secure helps you in all of those times. Knowing the end drives us to missions. When we see this, we're fueled for missions. And so we think of the Apostle Paul who can say, I endured all things for the sake of the elect. He knows that God is going to be faithful. He knows that God is going to accomplish his purposes. And so he says, I endure. I hang tough. Because I know that no matter what I go through, God will still win. God will glorify his name and bring a people to worship him. Two points this morning. And the first is simply this. Be motivated to missions because you see the beast conquered. Be motivated to missions, particularly because you see in the scriptures the defeat of the evil one, Satan. You see the defeat of his kingdom. You see the defeat of those who align with him in Revelation. You see the defeat of the beast and others, the false prophet in the book of Revelation. But be motivated because you know the end. I don't know if you're like me, but I like history. And and apologies for those of you that don't like history. But I've been listening to audiobooks on history lately, and I've I've gotten on this kick of of the World War II in in the South Pacific. Uh, Don't ask me why, but I keep listening to every book I can find on the South Pacific right now. Um, Even was listening to one on the drive up here for a little bit. And, And we look back at that, And we know the end. And we go, yeah, you know, this is this is gonna I I know how World War II ends. Germany's defeated, Japan is defeated. Even when you study the European theater and you study about the brave men that landed at D-Day, and this I think is a good analogy at at, uh, Veterans Day, you you know that what that accomplished and that it would It secured the beachhead and the end was coming. But you listen to these stories and you put yourself in the shoes of these troops, particularly in the Pacific campaign after the destruction of part of our fleet at Pearl Harbor. And you can imagine the fear in these soldiers. Is the end certain? Will the U.S. win? We, we didn't have our, our uh, battleships. After the Battle of Midway, one of our carriers sank. 
Halsey had to go down to Guadalcanal at one point with, with less than an ideal force, and there's all these statistics and numbers. And, and, and in these early days, nobody knew could the Japanese be defeated. They were some of the fiercest fighters and had some of the best trained pilots in the world. How much different is it for you and I? We feel like in those dark days, the evil one is winning. Hebrews tells us we don't see all things under Christ's feet, even though they are under Christ's feet. But we know when we read scripture, the end. And we have this certainty of the defeat that is coming. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing before the sea of glass with the harps of God in their hand. Notice here as, as we move through chapter 14, we've had these judgments that the Lord has brought through, through angels. I do think those are probably things that are taking place in, in the tribulation, although revelation is a little bit tricky because it's often standing from the perspective of the first century and, and looking ahead and at the same time giving hope and encouragement to, to the church. And so there are these times where he looks really far ahead and there's these times, like I think in Revelation 12, where he's talking about the big picture of God's redemption, even the, the defeat of Christ, or excuse me, the defeat of evil by Christ on the cross. But I do think these are some specific future judgments. And we see for a time the Lord then is finished in using these angels. He says, for with them the wrath of God is finished. This reminds us of one of the great motivations for missions. And it's understanding that the wrath of God is coming. We understand that the judgment of God is coming and those who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will not stand in the day of judgment. They will ultimately be condemned to hell in eternal conscious suffering. And sometimes we look at these things and we go, Phew, thank God I made it out. Thank God that's not my destiny. And yet we forget that we are no different than the lost sinner. As God saved us out of that. Remember Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, that we were by nature children of wrath. That we walked in the, the disobedience of the world, of the prince of the air, serving and following the ways of the world. So we take joy that the wrath is finished for us, that therefore now in Christ there is no condemnation for the believer, but it should motivate us to tell others about Jesus Christ. How did you come to be saved? 
When was the first time you heard the gospel or the first time that you heard it maybe and it really clicked and you felt like your eyes were opened? Maybe for some of you it was when a a parent or a grandparent shared it. Maybe for some of you it was when a Sunday school teacher shared it. Maybe some of you didn't grow up in a Christian home or in a church and you encountered a co-worker, someone at college maybe. Maybe you even found a track or heard a radio program. But the point is, someone shared the gospel with you. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How much more should we then be motivated to share the gospel? We share the gospel because we know there is the wrath of God. And we know that the wrath will not come for us. Notice 1 Thessalonians 1.10, that we wait for the Son from heaven, whom he, the Father, raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We've experienced even now a foretaste, as this wrath is no longer against us. Romans 5, 9, and 10. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? And then what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? God has given us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God. We know that we are spared from the wrath that is to come. We know that there is a wrath to come. And in light of that, God gives us the ministry of reconciliation. Whether or not you have officially missionary in your title or pastor in your job description or evangelist or Sunday school teacher, or Bible school leader, or whatever it might be, each and every one of us are called to the ministry of reconciliation. Each and every one of us have some role to play in the Great Commission. And I could tell you stories of of missionaries who didn't think they were called to missions, And they said, all I can do is swing a hammer. All I'm good at is drawing blood. I'm a nurse. We can use, God can use every profession in missions. We can put you anywhere in the world almost to do the things that God has gifted you to do and do them as a missionary. Not only that, God has put you in unique situations even now, maybe in your workplace, maybe with your family, maybe in this church where you have opportunity to share the gospel. God's wrath is finished for us. Notice that God's wrath had been proclaimed by the angels. I want to just, I want to just back up into chapter 14 and read a few of the verses. So if you're following along, just look back to chapter 14, verses 6 through 7. He says, Then I saw the angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel 
to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and the people. He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. That's exactly what we proclaim in the gospel. Now, we add more to it, right? We want to explain the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and trust in Christ alone. But, but this is kind of a, a nutshell summary. And you'll notice here this language of fear God and give him glory appears in verse 4 of chapter 15. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? John Piper has famously said, missions exists because worship does not. The goal of missions is to see every tongue, tribe, and people come and worship the living God. Not because the people are special, but because God is special and deserves glory from everyone. God's plan is to make his name known in all of his creation. That's been the plan from Genesis 1 and 2. And with our rebellion into sin, that plan then included the sending of a Savior so that we might be saved. But the plan of God is not just about individuals being saved. It is that, but it's broader and bigger than that. It's this picture of God making his glory and renown known. And so in our eschatology, you read Revelation 21 and 22, and God comes down, and the tabernacle of God is with man. There's no temple in the New Jerusalem, but God's presence is there in fellowship with them. And all peoples proclaim his glory. Look at verses 9 through 11 in, verse four, in chapter 14. Another angel, a third, said, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and the image and the mark on his forehead or his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full, full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torrent goes up forever and ever, and they, that, there may, that they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and his image, whoever receives the mark of its name. This is the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is sobering. We often misunderstand the wrath of God. We think it's something like human wrath where God is flying off the handle or God is boiling with rage. The wrath of God he executes with all of his other attributes. His justice, his holiness, his standards that he sets, that he is the one who has been rebelled against. 
And so the scriptures tell us the Lord is slow to anger. And yet there comes a day when his wrath is filled up and he executes it. And his wrath is an exercise of faithful justice. Right now we live in a world that in all, place, in all kinds of places people are clamoring for justice. Think of what's going on in Israel and Palestine, and I'm not going to wade into that mess. It's a complicated thing. But one thing you see from all the voices that are looking at this and blaming different sides, one consistent theme that you see is they're looking for justice. They recognize a fairness to justice, even if their reasons or their, their, who they think should get the justice is perverted and twisted. We have that longing in our hearts for justice because even in all of our sin, we are still made in the image of God. And we tend to look at the justice of God and say, that's not fair. And we forget that God is infinite in his holiness and majestic in his perfections. Let the wrath of God be something that motivates us. Think of Jonah, who when he hears that that Nineveh is going to get judged and experience the wrath of God, what does he do? He runs the other way. He wants those Ninevites to get what's coming to them. He knows how bad they are. They deserve this. And of course, we know the story of Nineveh and or of Jonah and how he goes into the boat and then he ends up in the whale and he learns the hard way. You can't run from God and you need to be faithful. And so he goes to Nineveh and he preaches the gospel. And for a season, the Ninevites repent. And then what? Jonah gets mad because he says, God, I knew you were going to do this. I knew that if they repented, you would withhold your justice. God delights when people repent. And so our eschatology of the coming wrath of God motivates us, encourages us to say, Get out there and share the gospel because God has always had a plan to save a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. You're not thwarting God's wrath. You're fulfilling his plan and how he has set forth and offered the son so that all who look upon him might be saved. In bringing the gospel to the nations, We go to people who are hostile to God and we invite them to turn and receive the forgiveness that God gives. Notice too in our passage that the disciples had experienced the conquering of the beast. Look at verse 2 of Revelation chapter 15. And I say what appeared to be a sea of glass, or I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who had conquered the beast and his image and the number of its name. The scene of the sea of glass 
reminds us of Revelation 4. Revelation 4, 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on the side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And so this is very similar to the worship we see in Revelation 5 before the throne of God. And and John tells us that he's Saul there around this sea of glass, those who had conquered the beast. Who conquers the beast? Now, the nice Sunday school answer would be Jesus. Jesus conquers the beast. That's always the answer to a question in church, right? Jesus certainly conquers the beast. But the focus here is that those who have believed in Jesus come to share in the victory of King Jesus in conquering the beast. This is contrasted with 14, 9, chapter 14, verse 9, of those who gave in to the beast, who end up drinking the wrath of God. The beast has been conquered. It's a theme in Revelation. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet. He saw Jesus. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Why is that important? Because because Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus likewise partook of the same things, in other words, flesh and blood, became man, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. If Jesus is sitting there and holding the keys of death and Hades, having defeated it on the cross so that eternal condemnation no longer waits those who believe in Jesus, then the power of Satan has been robbed. He's been undermined. In Revelation 4, we see uh, this cosmic battle going on in the heavens, and the dragon goes after the woman who's about to give birth. I think it's a picture of, of Jesus coming from the tribe of Israel, coming through Mary, giving birth, and the dragon being Satan, who's going after Jesus, doesn't want him to be born, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Chapter 12, verse 4. Then it says, she gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's Jesus. But her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then in verse 9, we say, the great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world, he was thrown down to the earth And his angels were thrown down with him. I heard a loud voice saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. The picture is, through the work of Jesus Christ, through his coming to be born, for his dying on the cross, rising again, ascending up into heaven, Satan no longer has the ability to accuse the brethren. He's defeated. 
and we engage in missions because we know that while Satan roams around like a roaring lion, he is ultimately defeated. The battle for his defeat was won on the cross and secured in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so now we see that the saints too in Christ can conquer. We see this in Revelation 12, 11 and 12. All they have conquered him, meaning the saints have conquered the evil one, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore, Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. We as believers partake in part of conquering the beast by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony, which I think just boils down to the preaching of the gospel. When faithful testimony is given to the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan's defeat, it's like another nail in the coffin. He's already been, the defeat has already been secured by the cross, but it just drives it home a little bit more. The Bible teaches us that Jesus wins in the end. Missions is partaking in that victory. Missions is announcing the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ, heralding good news and inviting people to receive him as their Lord and Savior. And when people get saved, Colossians tells us that God is transferring them out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. We fight a battle not by going out there and attacking our enemy and destroying them and shooting bad guys like modern war. We go out and fight the battle by giving a message of hope, proclaiming that God's love has been displayed to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and inviting people, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's how the battle gets fought. And through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, through the efficacy of Christ's shed blood, People come to saving faith. God's people then will rejoice because all nations come and see the Lord. Notice verses 3 and 4 of our chapter. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Be motivated to missions because you see how the saints will worship God in the future. 
Don't just be motivated because we're going to stick it to Satan. Be motivated because more people will come and worship God. He's the king of all the nations. And so people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation will gather before the throne. Let me just say this. If you don't like cultural diversity, people from other cultures who are different, who maybe like different foods, who have different styles. I'm not talking sinful versus non-sinful. I'm just talking those those neutral things that make people different. You're not going to like it in heaven. Because there are going to be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. There are going to be people in resurrected bodies with every skin color there. I don't know if there will be barbecues in heaven. But, but I can imagine in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll have our section, for those of you that like Western Texas barbecue, it will be over here, and next to that will be Kansas barbecue. And then we'll have, if you've ever been to a fiesta in the Philippines, you'll have the pig roast over here, and they'll have their finadeni sauce and their egg rolls and and, and it will be like that. If there are barbecues in heaven, you will walk down the great potluck in, in the new heavens and the new earth. And you will be trying food from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Because there will be people there from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And you know what? We will have one culture, the culture of Zion. We will have all of these wonderful differences that are morally neutral, that that, that are just who God made you to be, where you grew up, what you look like, uh, the things that you enjoy that I don't. But we will all be transformed to look like Jesus. We don't embrace multiculturalism today just because it's cool and trendy. But we do want to be a church. Church in the big sense of the church that recognizes people from every tongue, tribe, and nation gather before the throne. People of every tongue, tribe, and nation gather before the throne. How much more in our settings, as we have opportunity, should we be welcoming to people from every tongue, tribe, and nation who come to hear the word of God. Get to know somebody who's different than you. Get to understand their culture and the things that they like and why. And at the end of the day, they're a human being just like you and me. And they're either a believer, and you can fellowship with them in that, or they're an unbeliever, and you can share the gospel with them. Notice again, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you are holy, and all nations will come and worship you. Your righteous acts have been revealed. Do you and I rejoice that all nations will come and worship the Lord? Do we engage in missions now 
because we see the end. We, we know our eschatology. We know that Satan gets defeated. We know that God is worshipped by people from all nations. And we know that there will be people there from every tongue, tribe, and nation who are very different, but all of them have been saved by the same blood of Jesus Christ and have been glorified and transformed into bearing his image. Revelation 21.3 For I heard a loud voice saying from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You know what's beautiful about this? You, you can do a whole biblical theology on that one verse, and you can track it back through the Old Testament, and that was what God said to Israel. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And now he says it, and he's expanded it. He's not just saying it to those who are ethnically Jewish. He's saying it to people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. I'm your God, and you're my people. We could unpack this a lot. Ephesians 2 has some things to say about it. We can see it in 1 Peter where the church, like Israel, is called the kingdom of priests. We can go into Romans 11, how Gentiles are grafted in. But the point is this. We have a God who has always been the God of the nations. And he's always had a plan to save people. And missions is what we engage in because God's plan has been to save people through the Lord Jesus Christ from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Back to my World War II analogy. One of the biggest battles in World War II was D-Day. It was when we landed on France it guaranteed the defeat of Hitler. It was kind of the, the first thing that, that gave us confidence that he really could be defeated. And as the soldiers worked their way across the fields in France and then later in Germany, they still had battles to fight. But if it wasn't for D-Day, they wouldn't be there fighting. They still had the victory in Europe Day yet to come. We're like that soldier. We live in a time between the two great fights. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has won the kingdom, secured that there will be a people of God in the future from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We're waiting yet for that final day, that eschatological end, the, the return of Jesus, the judgment, the setting up of the new heavens and the new earth. And right now we're in that middle ground of the battle space. But we engage in missions because we know the cross won the battle. And we engage in missions 
because we know the end is secure. And that's how eschatology motivates us for missions. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day and we thank you for your love for us. We pray that your blessing upon us and uh, that you would just uh, continue to drive us and motivate us to missions. And we thank you for the church taking time this weekend to really uh, just focus on missions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.